Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. The 16th Congressional District includes parts of Lancaster, Chester, and Berks counties. With the retirement of longtime Republican Congressman Joe Pitts this year, the seat is now open, one of the few across the country, and as a result, it is getting national attention. As part of WITF's election 2016 coverage, today we're joined by the Democratic candidate for the 16th Congressional District seat, Christina Hartman. Ms. Hartman, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to start off by uh, having you introduce yourself a little bit uh, because you are a newcomer to uh, elected office, running for elected office in the 16th district. Uh, Voters who uh, may not be familiar with you, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I grew up in Lancaster County, went to Manheim Township High School, and I went on to the George Washington University and to Fordham University for my two degrees. Those are in international affairs with an emphasis in economics. And then I spent the better part of my 16-year career advocating and negotiating for human rights all over the world. So Sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, and Central Asia, including Afghanistan. And here at home, I've supported survivors of domestic violence, sexual assault, and child abuse. Now, what organizations were you involved with, affiliated with, uh, when you worked overseas? When I worked overseas, I worked uh, for Freedom House, which is a democracy and human rights organization. And I worked for the National Democratic Institute, which is an organization chaired by Madeleine Albright that does elections and civil society development overseas. All right, so let's talk about some issues. That's what we're here for. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you see, the, or what do you see as the biggest issue or issues uh, facing the country right now? Wow, there's so many issues facing the country, but what I've heard from voters as we've traveled the 16th district over the past uh, 12 months is that, you know, it's really the bread and butter issues that are important to folks locally. So education, making sure that our um, young folks have great education, um, great public schools, um, and that they're prepared for uh, the work environment. And that leads us to the second most important thing, which is a strong economy and great jobs. So making sure that we have jobs in the area that pay a living wage, um, and again, that we have the, the job training uh, necessary to make sure that folks who are transitioning from one industry to another um, have the capacity to do that. And also when folks are exiting high school, that they have the skills that they need um, to enter the job market. And again, providing job training or apprenticeship programs, um, I think is another part of that. You're running for Congress. What is the federal government's role in that? I mean, education for the most part, Mm -hmm. uh, very often is handled on a statewide basis or even on the local basis. Mm -hmm. What can the federal government do to improve education? So what we've seen, as I'm sure you know, um, through No Child Left Behind, is uh, the federal government plays an important role. And while um, we're really glad that No Child Left Behind is being repealed in many ways. I think a lot um, of people are. I think we are mostly. On, on both sides. On both yeah. sides of the aisle. I think we're really happy to see that. Um, because what we know in, you know in a global economy, what we know that Americans are best at is our entrepreneurial spirit and our critical thinking skills. And so we want to make sure that those are the top of the education agenda um, and that we're not killing as teachers and students with tests that are overburdensome and that, you know, make uh, just, again, sort of kill the spirit of entrepreneurial behavior and critical thinking. Um, So really making sure that at the federal level, um, when we're sort of implementing policies across the nation, that we're doing so, we're putting teachers in charge, making sure that they're treated as the professionals that they, that we know that they are. My mom's a first grade teacher. I know that Mm -hmm. firsthand. Um, And then again, for the, to the degree that Title I funding um, is applicable in this district, it's mostly in our urban schools, so in Lancaster and Reading and Coatesville, and making sure, again, that those schools have the tools they need to um, make a great education for our, our students in the district. Now, you mentioned that you're glad to see 
uh, No Child Left Behind go away. But there's still some controversy, and this comes down from the feds as well, with Common Core. Mm -hmm. um, without getting into too much of the background here, because we could spend, well, we, could. we would spend the entire <laughs> hour talking just about that. But what's your thoughts on that? Yeah. So again, I think Common Core at its outset was a, a great idea in the sense of, you know, some kind of national standard to, um, so if you're moving from Kansas to Pennsylvania in the third grade, that you end up, you know, having something similar in terms of the educational standard. Um, but what we've seen is that, unfortunately, because things are driven at the state level, things, and, and even the local level here, that sometimes things are, um, you know, overridden by uh, political school boards. So in Texas, we've seen uh, uh, textbooks rewritten and things done that, you know, aren't so helpful. So we want some kind of national standard, but that it's not politicized and that it helps, again, to improve the education of students across the country um, to make sure that we're hitting standards and that we're, again, just creating an educational environment that builds the best students that we can who will then be the most productive members of our society. But you do support it. Uh, Common Core? Yeah. Um, again, not as it currently stands. No, not not as it currently stands. But again, just the, the general thought that we might want to consider something, yeah, yeah. something okay. at a national level. What in particular do you disagree with it? Um, well, I think what's happened at the state level is that, again, the Common Core was then designated to the states to address at the state level. And so each state has addressed it differently. Um, and unfortunately, here in Pennsylvania, you know, um, we, as our Auditor General, Eugene de Pasquale, has pointed out and as uh, experts in uh, charter school legislation have pointed out we have one of the worst charter school laws in the nation. Um, things like that are really damaging um, us, as well as the PSSAs, the the overburdened nature of those tests. Um, you know, many of my friends are teachers, and they experience that firsthand. And again, we're not treating teachers as the professionals that they are. And at the same time, um, our students are suffering from too many tests. Big question: Why did you decide to run? Well, I think like many people in this country, I was just very frustrated with the state of affairs in Washington, D.C., and really frustrated that we weren't, um, you know, for my own taxpayer dollars, for your taxpayer dollars, we weren't getting many results. And I believe that, you know, my career, I spent negotiating and advocating for human rights around the globe. So often sitting across the table from adversaries, you know, we were allowed to be in the countries where I worked, but the person across the table from me from another country wasn't necessarily glad that I was there. So we worked together to find compromise to find solutions um, that would then give citizens in those countries voice. And I think that's what we need on Capitol Hill. We need someone who can come to the center, who can negotiate, and make sure that we're hearing citizens. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, that was one of the, the, the big questions I have for all congressional candidates this year. I mean, we live in a divided country. I mean, it's uh, very polarized. And Washington in particular, we know that uh, there has not been a lot going on in Congress as far as if you look at the number of bills that have passed mm -hmm. and uh, cooperation. Things have changed over the past mm -hmm. 20 years or so. Mm -hmm. So one of the questions I have for you is, are you willing to reach across the aisle? What do we do as a nation and in Washington to try to bridge that gap, to bring people together to actually get things done? There are about five questions there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think first and foremost, it's about electing moderates like myself. I think what we've gotten to the point, and you know, the gerrymandering plays a role in this, but you know, we have folks who are at opposite ends of the spectrum um, because that's who folks have elected. And what we need to do is start by electing more moderate folks. But while in Congress, what my job will be is 
allies to bring folks to the table. And so how do you do that? You find ideas and policy think solutions where people from all sides of the aisle, from both sides of the aisle, can get behind. Um, it's about building relationships. I mean, one thing that we know that's happened in the past 20 years, if you talk to folks who worked on Capitol Hill, particularly in the 80s and 90s, is they'll tell you that, you know, people don't socialize together anymore. Their kids don't go to, you know, aren't on the same baseball team anymore. There's the, there's a real lack of camaraderie and relationship building. So it will be, you know, one of the first things that I do is to reach across the aisle and to start building those relationships. Because until you know, and we, we see this all the time in, in people's regular interactions, if you know somebody that's had a particular experience, you identify more with them. Um, and it's, it's not as easy just to sort of say, oh, well, you don't matter because you know someone in that situation. And so, you know, building those relationships on Capitol Hill to say, hey, no, I get where you're coming from. We might disagree, but where's the halfway and how can we find a middle ground that will appeal to the majority of Americans? Uh, any Republicans in the House you've targeted for uh, socializing with? <laughs> I'm joking, of course, but, but a, a serious question, though, and this is a lot about a candidate. Uh, name a Republican who you admire. A Republican who I admire, you know, I mean, there's there's quite a few. I think there's been so many, um, particularly throughout history. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, Eisenhower comes to mind, Dwight Eisenhower. Um, uh, you know, I admire so many folks, uh, again, in, in an old political, old school political sense of the word, um, that have helped our country. Again, when we look back in time, um, we've seen so many folks come to the middle um, and do things that took courage and took real leadership skills. And we want to make sure that, again, folks are doing that today. And I think that's what we're lacking. I think we're lacking that courage and that leadership. Why, why do you call yourself a moderate? Well, I call myself a moderate because I grew up in Lancaster County, and I think that what you know, folks um, perceive this district as conservative, but I call it a mini America. So we have three urban centers. We have the sprawl of the suburbs where I grew up in Manheim Township, and then we have the farmland that we want to protect and preserve. And so this, all of this together adds up to a very, very moderate place. And again, I grew up in the 80s in, in Manheim Township, which I always tease that a bunch of Reagan Republicans raised a bunch of Democrats. <laughs> I'm not sure how that happened, but it's, you know, just folks who believe in public education. These are folks who want a strong economy because they want a good job. They're folks who believe in Social Security and Medicare and want it to be there for them um, in their old age. And they're also folks who just want their tax, their hard-earned taxpayer dollars to be used efficiently and effectively. And to me, that's the thing. Those are the things that make people just moderates. And that's where most of America is. But is there an issue that you can point to that you would say, I'm a little more to the right on this than what, say, the National Democratic Party is? Mm -hmm. um, I think probably foreign policy. I think on foreign policy, I'm probably a little more hawkish than um, some people would expect for a Democrat. And I think that's because I've spent my career overseas. I've worked in Muslim majority, a lot of Muslim majority countries. I've worked um, in, again, in Afghanistan. I've worked in difficult places and I've done those things firsthand. So certainly not in the way that folks in the military have done, but in a way that um, the threats are clear. You know, I understand the threats are real from ISIS, from, uh, from Russia. Those are not things to, uh, you know, 
sort of not just like bat an eye and keep moving. These are real serious threats. And I'm someone who's been followed by other people's security agencies. I'm someone who's been hacked. Um, you know, my computers have been hacked oh, too. Really? I get it. And so, you know, those are those are serious threats. So I think that I'm probably a bit more hawkish on foreign policy than than your average Democrat. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're talking with 16th Congressional District Democratic candidate Christina Hartman. And uh, we're not taking phone calls during this portion of the program and continuing to talk about issues. WITF's election 2016 coverage is supported by the Harrisburg office of the law firm of Saul Ewing, LLP. I want to get on to uh, some issues. And one of the big issues in this campaign, and many people have called this uh, 2016 presidential campaign unlike any other, and I think that we all would have to agree with that. But the Donald Trump, the Republican nominee, has become an issue in itself. And whether candidates below uh, the presidential, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and who they support has become issues. Looking at your TV commercials, you have made that a major issue when attacking your uh, opponent, Republican uh, Lloyd Smucker. Why is uh, Trump an issue? Well, Trump is at the top of the ticket, and when folks like my opponent endorse him, it becomes an issue. Um, you know, Trump has denigrated women. He mocks the disabled. This is not somebody who's temper- temperamentally fit to be president of the United States, and he certainly doesn't represent the values of central Pennsylvanians, that's for sure. And so, you know, we're making it an issue because, I mean, personally, as a woman, I'm incredibly offended by the things the man says on a daily basis, but also because, uh, again, these are not our values. And when my opponent went full throttle and endorsed this man. Um, I mean, he did it as far back as the primary um, through his, you know, sort of uh, defending building of a wall and all, all sorts of things. Um, up through recently when he participated in the Trump rally in Mannheim, Pennsylvania, um, that's a full that's a full endorsement of somebody that, again, most people in our district cannot abide. You know, it's, uh, again, he doesn't match up with our values. He's somebody that's quite toxic and is not going to be a good leader of the free world. And yet my opponent has doubled down on that endorsement multiple times. How do you know that he doesn't match up with them? Maybe that's not the right question, but I guess what I'm looking at is final vote totals. Mm. Are you saying that you think that uh, Trump will lose in your district? Yes. You do? Mm-hmm. Do you think he'll lose big? I don't know by how many points he will lose, but he will lose. Okay. Um, your opponent, uh, one of your opponents, uh, Lloyd Smucker, the state senator uh, from Lancaster County, has criticized you for looking the other way when it comes to Hillary Clinton's emails that he and Trump say risk national security and um, also some of the pr- potential improprieties with the, the Clinton Foundation, which became an issue last night uh, during uh, the, the last debate. How do you respond to that? Again, you know, we go back to a couple of different things. First of all, Secretary Clinton has um, apologized multiple times for uh, judgment, you know, errors in judgment. And I think, again, we can say that those emails, the email situation in the email server was an error in judgment. And she's apologized for that. And I think we all, again, time and again, people have tried to dig up things and, and haven't found anything of real relevance. Um, and the FBI has been involved. We know the whole story. And yet, you know, I think it's time to move on to, to something else. I don't, I think we want to be really careful about our national security and always be careful about how we treat that information. Um, uh, but again, she's apologized, and I think we should all move on from that. Um, that's not to say that we shouldn't double down on our own national security and make sure that uh, our email systems are in order. So 
once again, I'll go back to my personal experience. I'm someone who's worked with the State Department regularly. I know that their their email system is uh, goes down from time to time because they're constantly trying to um, limit threats to that system. I'm someone who's been hacked. I understand those things. Um, you know, the Russians and I worked in the former Soviet Union. I worked in Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan. These are places where, um, again, where American presence is not necessarily welcome and where we have to, we're constantly fighting those threats. So I think from a very practical standpoint, um, we need to continue to make sure that we are investing in the resources that we need in technology, in the government, to uh, prevent those things from happening um, and to make sure that the Secretary of State has the email system that she needs to uh, to to work appropriately. Um, and, you know, I'm sorry, the second part of your question was... Uh, well, we were, we were just talking about the Clinton Foundation, yeah. and too. The Clinton she did Found- not really do a good job last night in the debate answering Chris Wallace's question about that. Sure. I mean, I think, again, it depends... So having worked for foundations and nonprofits my whole life, you know, I'm not excusing her any behavior that um, that was wrong. I'm definitely not doing that. Right. Absolutely. If there was something that was wrong that was done, let's find it, figure it out and make sure that it's um, that we're transparent and that she's accountable. Transparency and accountability are important. However, uh, we all know that there are relationships and how you build things. And then when people take things out of context, um, we work hard every day inside nonprofits to build relationships. Relationships. It's it's a very political business. I mean, even when you know organizations like WITF raise funds for you know capital funds and things like that, it's that's a process, and you're constantly building relationships, and it becomes very political very quickly. It's the nature of the business. And so, again, I'm not excusing anything. I'm not saying we shouldn't investigate further if that's what's warranted to make sure that things are transparent and accountable. But by and large, this is this is business, and this is how it works. What sets you apart from your opponents, uh, Senator Lloyd Smucker and uh, Sean House? Well, I think, you know, there's there's a number of things that set me apart, but specifically um, just new energy and fresh ideas. We are so tired of the same old thing on Capitol Hill, and I'm you know <laughs> I think we're all tired of trying the same thing. We keep electing the same people to office and expecting a different result, and um, that's a variation on the definition of insanity, right? So, I was waiting for that. Uh, right? <laughs> so I think we want to you know we want to see something different. So in order to see something different, we're going to have to try something different. And again, I think some of the problems that we face with our country can be resolved through relationship building, as we talked about a moment ago, but also by thinking creatively and coming up with new solutions that are out of the box, that are outside of the norm, to really drive our country forward. Some of those are technological advances. Again, Lancaster's trying to become the Silicon Valley of the East Coast. Like We have some of those things right in our county, right in our city um, that are happening. And then how do we link that back to the national security piece that we just talked about with you know emails and protecting us from hackers and all that stuff? Um, and then just, again, technological advances, but also making sure that we're um, you know, supporting the day-to-day business of small businesses in our community who we know are the economic backbone, but are who are are also the community's backbone, right? So we want to support all those things and move them forward. And I think we've got lots of creative ideas. Um, again, new energy. I'm not the same old, same old. Um, and if you want more of the same, then perhaps my opponents are the like, <laughs> the people for you. <laughs> well, let's talk about that. Um, as far as creative ideas, new ideas, thinking outside the box. Tell me about it. Is there something that you have that you think that is different than what we're doing now? 
I do, and I think it's an approach, Scott. So I would say that what I bring to the table that's really different from other folks is a strategic approach. So looking at things from the proverbial forest level and sort of taking a step back and seeing how all these things intersect. So if we take the environment, for example, the environment is like is oftentimes with conservative folks is a four letter word. So, you know, how do we get to folks and how do we explain things in a way that really helps them to understand? So we could talk about environment. Or we could talk about health, um, you know, uh, air quality and, you know, water quality, which relates back to health and the costs associated with health. Um, we could relate it back to the um, a cost of the economy. You know, when um, we're not treating our environment well, then it costs us more to do business um, in, in our economy. Uh, what about our national security? When we know that, uh, you know, climate change is happening and uh, sea levels are rising, the Pentagon um, acknowledges climate change, they're having to spend more on ships and things like that. So how do we talk about issues that affect all of us, but from the angle, from where people are. Um, and so I think, again, it's about broadening our approach to how we discuss things. It's about communicating effectively and making sure that we're meeting people where they are. Um, and one of the challenges as a congressperson, and I think I'd like to think I have an advantage as a, as a sort of younger member or younger candidate for Congress, is that we, again, we want to meet folks exactly where they are. So for older folks, maybe that's in the mail and on television. For younger folks, that's on Snapchat, that's on on social media, as we always talk about, um, but really communicating and being out front. What we haven't seen from our past representatives is somebody who's really with the people, who communicates to them regularly. So again, it's that's how you find creative solutions, right? So getting back to the core of your question, the way that you find creative solutions is by having as many conversations as you can possibly have. And the only way to do that is to communicate with your constituents. How do, and that's a, that's a challenge for, I mean, when you're talking about you know, hundreds of thousands of people in a district. Um, let me give you an example for one issue in particular. I know that uh, you support, uh, you know, more, I don't know, I, I'll ask you your thoughts on guns, uh, but at the same time, say, and I'm just going to a particular uh, issue, say the people in your district say, you know, we don't support, we don't agree with your position on guns. Mm. How do you vote in Congress? Well, I think, I know that's something that you just won't deal with. They all deal with. Sure. But I, so again, this is down to, you know, as an elected, you're constantly faced with the conundrum of, am I voting my own views or am I voting my constituents' views? And I think the answer is always, I'm voting my constituents' views. So in Pennsylvania's 16th, we know that you know folks are in favor of having the right to purchase, that law-abiding citizens should have the right to purchase a gun. That is a fact in the 16th district. My father owned a gun when I was growing up. He hunted. We had a rifle in our house. You know, that's something that's a part of you know my family and um, my father's family. And that's what folks in the district want. They also want gun safety. So they want background checks. These are folks who fully support background checks. In fact, Senator Toomey, you know, unfortunately, my my opponent's so far to the right that he doesn't even support Senator Toomey's uh, gun safety legislation, which, you know, again, that's a step in the right direction. We need those kinds of gun safety laws. So I think it's about voting with your constituents and what they want, because that's that's your job. That's who you're So you would vote against something that you campaigned on if your constituents said, this is what we want? I think that I would, based on if we did enough polling and enough conversations to know, in fact, that that's the case. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And go against uh, the party, if the party has a different point of view. 
there will be times when I will vote against the party. Yes, absolutely. That will happen. And that's an important, again, an important distinction. And, and folks at the leadership level, they know that because we Democrat, you know, it's sort of it's like being Catholic or Mennonite. It runs the gamut. You're not all the same. It's, you know, and so it's it's part and parcel of, of being a member of a very large party that whose tent is very large. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about some other issues. Mm -hmm. um, the Affordable Care Act. Uh, I actually have Pennsylvania's insurance commissioner on the program uh, tomorrow. Rates for on the insurance exchanges have gone way up this time. We have uh, a lot of insurance companies that are dropping out, offering uh, policies to uh, the uninsured or for those who need to go on uh, the, the exchange. Do we need tweaks with the Affordable Care Act? Maybe I should ask if you support it, uh, those people who are saying it should be repealed. Mm -hmm. and. Do we need tweaks with it? So again, um, to be clear, I support the Affordable Care Act, but we need tweaks, right? So that's the short answer, um, unlike my opponent who wants to repeal it entirely. So this is a compromised piece of legislation. As I'm sure you recall, this started out with a, uh, the Heritage Foundation, which is a conservative think tank in D.C., with a paper that they sort of developed. Um, and then that's where the Obama administration started, with that conservative think tank paper. Then they moved on uh, to develop what we see today in a bipartisan fashion. So what we see with the Affordable Care Act is that you know, for everybody in this country who wants compromise, that's a piece of compromise legislation, whether we like it or not. And so I always like to highlight that because compromise means that both sides gave up something. And um, what we know is that 20 million people are insured now that weren't insured before. We know that folks can stay on their parents' insurance till they're 26. We know that pre-existing conditions are covered, and we want to keep all of those things. Now, we want to make sure that the Affordable Care Act is actually affordable. So to your point, and, you know, we need to, those rates just went up and something that we're tracking closely and that we want to get more information about and meet with insurers and talk about that. But I think the answer lies in the marketplace. It relies, it relies on people like me who are generally well. Um, again, uh, signing up for insurance means that we, you know, because that's how insurance companies make their money off of healthy people. And then making sure that um, the marketplace is open in a way that encourages competition um, so that the prices go down and we want to in the interim, if that's not the case, if that's not happening, find solutions to make sure that it does. What about trade issues? You know, it seems like such a long time ago that uh, uh, when Donald Trump announced his candidacy, uh, much of what he focused on was trade. Uh, it actually was discussed last night in the debate, but there hasn't been as much discussion about NAFTA, about TPP, mm -hmm. as uh, there was in the early months of uh, the campaign. Where do you stand on, say, TPP and trade? Yeah. So again, I come at this from somebody who has two degrees in international affairs and that the crux of those degrees is, or at least part of that is economics. So I was trained as a liberal economist. So, and I spent a good deal of my um, studies looking at globalization. And so I believe that trade is important and that the United States participating in a global system and participating in trade is very important. And we must continue to do that in order for our economy to grow. However, we want to make sure that we're doing so in a way that that doesn't leave Americans behind, so that we're competing in the best ways possible, that we're growing our businesses locally and globally in the best way possible, and that we're supporting workers in the best way possible. So to date, TPP doesn't, you know, there's a couple things that need to be tweaked with that agreement before it actually meets some of the standards that I would need to see um, to vote for that. Um, we want to make sure that workers are uh, getting, you know, that, that folks are getting paid a living wage. We want to make sure that folks are, um, if there's an industry 
industry that's closing, for example, and this happened a lot after NAFTA, um, you know, that if manufacturing jobs are going away, that we're trans helping people to transition into another um, industry by providing them job training or a social safety net in the interim. Um, and and some of the folks who are very big Trump supporters today, we know those folks were left behind because of some of those things. So it's our job to make sure that we're negotiating the best deal possible. And then here at home, we're providing that interim solution to folks so that they feel like they continue to be a part of their community and part of the workforce. Mm -hmm. We're almost out of time, but I want to thank you very much for oh, being on the program today. Always uh, like to leave a candidate an opportunity to leave a message with voters. What would that be? Well, I think, again, going back to just new energy and fresh ideas, we're really excited about this election cycle and what I have to bring to the table to make sure that we move towards the center to get Washington working again. Um, I'll be fighting for the people of the 16th in Washington, and I, uh, I hope that everyone uh, who's listening will consider voting for me on November 8th. Christina Hartman is the Democrat running for Congress in the 16th Congressional District made up of Lancaster, Berks, and Chester Counties. Thank you very much for being Thank with you. us today. You're listening to Smart Talk on WYTF. Your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. The unusually warm weather aside this week, it is fall in Pennsylvania, a time when many Pennsylvanians will be taking a ride in their cars, riding their bikes, and hiking on a trail with orange, yellow, and red leaves all around. On this segment of today's program, we'll take a peek at what the state has to offer for tourists this fall. Joining us on today's program is Carrie Lapore, Pennsylvania's Department of Community and Economic Development Deputy Secretary, Office of Marketing, Tourism, and Film Secretary uh, Laporte, thank you very, very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Also joining us is Dave Schmidt, who is with the Pennsylvania Department of Conservation and Natural Resources. He's our forestry and uh, leaf expert today. Mr. Schmidt, welcome to the program. Thank you. Great to be here. If you have a question or comment about traveling in Pennsylvania, I know we make a hard turn going from uh, the candidates that we're speaking to this month to uh, having a good time and uh, traveling throughout Pennsylvania. Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, fall in Pennsylvania, Carrie. Make your case. Fall in Pennsylvania, my goodness. It's actually one of my favorite seasons in, in Pennsylvania. I think Mother Nature is putting on this spectacular show right now. So whether by water or rail or car or foot, I strongly encourage all of your listeners to get out there and view the magnificent show right now. You know, as far as the seasons go, I would imagine that, uh, you know, I think it's pretty easy to tell that most people travel in the summertime when they're on vacation. The weather is really warm and that kind of thing. My guess, though, is that fall is probably the second. Absolutely. Is that, yes, that is a great guess. Um, of course, summer is our busiest travel season, right. but uh, fall is a close second. Fall is definitely bigger in Pennsylvania, and it's getting bigger every year. Mm -hmm. And what is attracting people um, and and, and I, I don't want to say just to Pennsylvania because that makes it sound like it's just out-of-state tourists uh, driving into the state, which we know there are some of those. But this is also a time of year, as I just described in the introduction, when we have many Pennsylvanians who may just drive 10, 20, 30 miles away. 
Absolutely. And that's something that's uh, so wonderful about Fall in Pennsylvania is that there is a show to be seen in literally every corner of the Commonwealth. So we joke whether you're driving to a Steelers game, an Eagles game, a Penn State game. Um, I definitely encourage someone else to drive and you call Shotgun because talk about distracted driving. Uh, I just did uh, a road trip to Lock Haven for, for business on Monday and my colleague was driving because I was hanging out the window looking at all the beautiful colors. Really? Yeah, I was, yes. So if you were pulled over by a state trooper <laughs> that we have here in Pennsylvania for hanging out the window. I would blame Mother Nature. You would blame Mother <laughs> Nature. Okay. All right. Well, one of the big attractions, of course, uh, is the or, or the leaves and, uh, you know, traveling around the state. And we always have, like, predictions and forecast of when uh, where the, the colors are going to be at their highlight and that kind of thing. Dave Schmidt, let me get, in fact, let me get the microphone a little closer to you. There we go. Um, this year, you know, we back during the summer, I remember seeing stories that said that uh, Pennsylvania may not be as colorful this year because of the hot, dry summer. What about that? Well, there are uh, chances that you take when we do have a dry summer that the uh, trees will start to make some changes before they're really ready. Yeah, I've seen uh, that. Yeah, because the tree, it's main idea is to stay healthy and coming into the fall trees by their nature however that is they know that the fall's coming the days are getting shorter they're making less food to feed their root systems they're socking energy away in terms of carbohydrates and they just shut it off they create what's called an abscission layer and that stops all movement of of minerals and water from the tree into the leaf we didn't see a whole lot of that we were afraid that we were going to but it didn't turn out that way why because i mean we have had a little bit of rain we're still above average i think for uh, if we take the year to date but why didn't we see that i think it was just that we were kind of on the edge we didn't we had hot days but they were humid days so you're not getting as much transpiration coming out of the out of the trees and they just didn't get drought uh stricken like they might have done and then we had this blessed rain about three weeks ago that saved the whole thing mm -hmm. and it the we had sunny days cool nights uh the the color the change in color has been stretched out and we're still a long ways from done. The oaks are just starting now to turn. You can, if you pay attention to the oaks on the hillsides, the abscission layer has laid in and they're starting to lose their chlorophyll. Mm -hmm. So when, when you uh, say we still have a long way to go, are you talking about this region? Because yeah. obviously Pennsylvania is a big state. It's a big state. It goes from north, the, the color changes go from north to south. And there still is a long way to go here. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What does it look like in the northern tier right now? I haven't been up there. Um, Karen? Yes. So um, I was just in Lock Haven, like I said, yeah. Monday. Um, however, we do have uh, some camera crews right now um, at Kinsua State Park. Um, getting some footage for us to promote fall next year. You have to shoot in season. Ah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I literally just saw some pictures, uh, some still photography from yesterday, and it is vibrant. It is bright. It hasn't fully changed yet, but it's definitely, um, you know, bright, vibrant yellows and oranges. 
That's Kinzu. Is that is that's Bradford County, right? Yes. Okay. No, it's at uh, McKean County. McKean, okay. Bradford. Okay. McKean County. All right. Yeah, yes. I knew it was in that uh, mm-hmm. that little that little stretch. Um, all right. So you know, Dave, you mentioned something, and I and Carrie, I saw this on the website, and I thought it was very interesting. Without getting into a scientific uh, mm-hmm. explanation, but one of the things that you do on the the website is talk about the different uh, trees that we do have here in Pennsylvania, and you know, every most people and my self-included. I go out and, you know, I look at a tree and say, oh, that's a nice orange. That's nice red. But not thinking, okay, that's an oak tree. That's a maple tree. You know, but we have such a variety of trees native to Pennsylvania that create these colors. What are some of them? Well, we have the dogwoods, right. and they have a they have a red kind of a dusty red color. And, and this year, it's a really good one. Uh, we've got the black gums, which turn from a bright red to a deep, deep red, almost to a purple. Uh, some of the oaks, you're going to get yellows, you're going to get reds, brilliant reds. Um, the uh, uh, the river or the yellow birch right now, they're turning, and they are a bright yellow, uh, bright yellow leaf. The maples are everything from a bright yellow to a deep, deep red. Uh, the Sugar maples typically are more of a yellow and orange. The sassafras is a really interesting color of orange, and they are holding on to their leaves right now, and the colors are absolutely fantastic. They Mm. really are. So when, okay, if I wanted to travel to the northern tier, would now be the time? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So next week or two weeks may be a little bit too late. Yeah, two weeks might be a little late. Um, this but area. on the way up, on the way up, you're still going to be seeing a lot of color. Right, right. Now, I have a wedding to go to th- this week in northern Dauphin County. Uh, what about the leaves there? I'm looking for a forecast. <laughs> it ought to be real good. We're not, again, we're not going to see, well, yuck. and that's this weekend? Yeah, Saturday, day after tomorrow. You're going you're gonna to see a lot of the, the maples and the birches on, in the lowlands going up onto the toe of the mountains. There's going to be a lot of color there, okay. a lot of color. Up onto the higher, drier sites, that's going to be mostly oak. And if you look, you're going to see light green starting to appear. And that means they're getting ready to turn. Okay. Well, I have a camera along, too. You have to take pictures of the wedding, but I want to make sure. It's an outdoor wedding, so I want to make sure that there's a nice, colorful background for for this. By the way, you are listening to WITF Smart Talk, uh, your NPR News, and NP, your, I should say, your, for all things regional, N- NPR News, WI. I say this every day, and I, <laughs> I messed it up. Anyway, uh, we're talking with uh, Carrie Lapore, who is the Deputy Secretary the Office of Marketing, Tourism, and Film with the Pennsylvania Department of Community and Economic Development. Development and Dave Schmidt, Department of Conservation Natural Resources, talk about traveling in Pennsylvania this fall. Give us a call, 1 800 729 7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. And you know what? I'm going to solicit some photographs out there. Uh, we'd like to see your favorite fall photographs. If uh, you have some photographs, maybe from years past, maybe it's not from uh, 2016. You have to wait the next year to do that. But send them to WITF's Facebook page. Um, we'll 
we'll try to have a little catalog there, if you will, of uh, some fall scenes. But I know that there are a lot of photographers out there, amateur photographers, see a nice, um, you know, a nice mountain, a nice forest scene with the, all the colors. Uh, and, you know, send them to us, WITF.org uh, or to WITS Facebook page. That's really where it should be set. Our phone number, 1-800-729-7532. Go ahead, Carrie. What were you going to say? I was just going to request that if you do and when you do post these pictures, please be sure to use our hashtag, hashtag fall in PA. Okay. We will do that. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Uh, and that's a, a Twitter uh, hashtag, of course, mm-hmm. but we can you know, use that on Facebook anyway. Um, but uh, so, Carrie, what Dave was describing here, uh, do you find people asking questions about the forecast, about, uh, you know, as far not the weather as much as, as the leaves and when's the best time to travel, that kind of thing? Do you get those questions? Well, we are very, very proud to have a fantastic relationship with our sister agency at the Department of Conservation and Natural Resources. They do share the foliage reports uh, I believe it's weekly. We have that uh, up to date on um, visitpa.com. So we do encourage, again, people to go to visitpa.com to find out uh, what is happening in each of these foliage regions mm-hmm. and zones. Mm-hmm. All right. We're going to be taking a phone call here in just a moment from Jamie in Shippensburg. But while we're waiting for Jamie to get on the line, um, you know, I, I think whenever we have you on the program, we always have to talk about the econo- economic uh, impact of uh, tourism in Pennsylvania. Uh, overall, how much money comes into Pennsylvania as a result of tourism? Uh, over $30 billion. I mean, it, it's huge. Where does that rank compared to other industries? Um, we used to say that we were uh, one of the largest. I think it's safe to say at this point that we're certainly one of the largest. Um, it used to be the second largest. But uh, again, we feel very comfortable saying that we still rank among the largest industries in Pennsylvania. Okay, second largest industries in Pennsylvania behind agriculture, yes. I assume? Yes. Okay, and that encompasses a lot. Um, what's changed over the years? I mean, it, it seems as though... You hear, I mean, obviously, we advertise much more and advertise in other markets, but, um, you know, Pennsylvania, these leaves have not really changed over the past uh, 50, 100 years, but maybe people's willingness to uh, say, you know what, that's something I think I would enjoy. Have you seen a change? Absolutely. I think that, um, I think fall in general is really having a moment, whether it's the pumpkin spice craze or um, the the growing popularity of pick your own, whether it's apples or pumpkins. Um, I think fall is is really becoming a uh, larger and larger travel season, um, not just in Pennsylvania, but uh, nationwide, um, especially with the low cost of gas right now. I think people are really uh, willing and eager and wanting to hop in their car and take in fall every moment that they can. And, of course, we encourage you to do that in Pennsylvania. <laughs> mm-hmm. Let's uh, go to the, the phone now and uh, talk with Jamie in Shippensburg. Jamie, you're on the air. Hi. Right. Um, thank you for taking my call. Yes, you're welcome. Um, okay, so I really, really love visiting the state parks throughout PA. And I one thing that one feature that I look out for in particular are waterfalls. I just love waterfalls. And... Um, I was wondering if there are any um, uh, waterfalls that are, like, are any parks that are known for a waterfall around here or, you know, ones that you hear about that have really pretty waterfalls. How, how far are you willing to travel, Jamie? Really anywhere. Um, I know that I've seen one, like, up near, like, Cook Forest and, like, Clarion, PA, but... Um, yeah, so but that's a little far up there. But yeah, really anywhere. It, it you know depends on where I can find them. Okay. Have you ever been to Ricketts Glen? 
I don't think so. Okay. We're going to talk about that, but uh, we'll talk about it in just a moment. Uh, Ricketts Glen, and I saw both of you shaking your heads when I mentioned it, because Ricketts Glen uh, in northeastern Pennsylvania, what is that, about two hours from here, something like that, from, from Harrisburg, um, 21 waterfalls. And they range from the height, I think, of like 10 feet up to 92 feet is the uh, is the highest. I've been there several times. But uh, I have never been there in the fall. But I would imagine that if you're looking for waterfalls and foliage, now you have to be willing to hike a little bit. But th- that would be a perfect place to go. Absolutely. And if you visit our Facebook page for Visit PA, um, we actually just this past Monday posted a picture of Ricketts Glen. And um, you can view the uh, the foliage. I mean, it is, once again, spectacular. Uh, I think that... Um, uh, we have one of the best state park systems in the nation. We have 121 state parks, over 83,000 miles of rivers and streams. Uh, our state parks are fantastic. And Ricketts Glen, um, with that those waterfalls and the hiking and all the other outdoor opportunities, is definitely something that should be on your must-do list this fall. Any others that, uh, I mean, because I know there are a lot of places, maybe not even state parks, that are private uh, places, privately owned for waterfalls. Yes. This past summer, my family and I um, went up to Bushkill Falls. Falls in mm. the Pocono Mountains. Uh, they have um, it's a series like a cascading waterfall. They have uh, multiple um, hikes that you can do in Bushkill Falls. What's really wonderful is you can have a great day of hiking. And what we personally did, we then hopped back in the car and drove up to Milford, which is just a quaint, darling town in uh, northeastern PA in the Pocono Mountains. They have fantastic boutiques and uh, uh, restaurants, and even uh, Hotel Faucher is a really really, really special um, little uh, boutique hotel that you can stay at. So I definitely think uh, if you go up to Bushkill Falls, which is known as the Niagara of Pennsylvania, um, you can uh, definitely go up there. And of course, yes, uh, Gifford Pinchot's um, Gray's I'm blanking. Gray Towers um, is up there as well. Um, okay. You both were blanking there for a second. Yes. I can tell the looks on your face. I'm like, okay, this is radio. Gray Towers, we can't yes. Uh, I have another one here. Uh, Jim Thorpe. Oh, my gosh. Jim Thorpe and, uh, you know, they, they have uh, some fall festivals in, in Jim Thorpe in uh, Carbon County, I believe. It's, uh, or is that Schuylkill County? I believe that's Carbon County. Carbon. Is yeah. it Carbon? Yeah. But Jim Thorpe, when you talk about uh, mm-hmm. the downtown shopping district and uh, the, the boutiques and that kind of thing and the water, Lehigh River is right there and all those things. I see someone here is also talking about uh, Frank, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's Falling Waters yes. in uh, western Pennsylvania. And that's somewhere you could go all year round, not just in the fall, but uh, somewhere else. We have a, a, an email here. It says, it seems with the increase in retail and housing development, as well as that related to the natural gas industry, we are losing much of our natural open spaces. If we re- really want to encourage tourism in the Commonwealth, particularly with regard to its natural beauty, does it really make sense to promote overdevelopment in rural and remote areas? I don't know whether you can answer that question or not, but maybe it's it's one of the things that here in Pennsylvania that because it's not just PA, but we do treasure our open spaces and the natural beauty 
because we do know that there is development going on around the state. Absolutely. I mean, our name, Pennsylvania, is Penn's Woods. Um, you know, so I think it is we have a, a heritage and a tradition of uh, in, enjoying and protecting our, our natural spaces. Um, you know, but I can tell you that uh, the BBC, BBC Travel recently did an article just within the past week or two on Allegheny National Forest. They did a fantastic piece. I, again, encourage people to look that piece up. But Allegheny National, uh, uh, National Forest, we have over 2 million acres of protected public lands in the Pennsylvania wilds. So there's definitely a lot of open space. It's something that um, DCNR and our friends at the Game Commission and Fish and Boat and, of course, tourism as well uh, really uh, try to um, support and encourage people to get outdoors and enjoy those uh, free public spaces. Are you getting kids outdoors? I think we're seeing, yes, family travel. Um, people, again, you know, multi-generational uh, travel, family travel. Well, I mean, that's always taking place, but how do you get the kids, uh, you know, because we know that uh, there are a lot of pe uh, young people who uh, are on their devices, and even if they are hiking, they may be taking their device along or in the back of the car rather than looking at nature. I mean, and we know that uh, a lot of young people need that exercise. How do you get them outdoors? Go ahead. One, yeah. of, one of the ways, and we were talking about Ricketts Glen, is <laughs> when you're out looking, particularly in a year like this where we don't have some of the great panoramas of color that you might remember it from the past, yeah. but the individual trees as you're walking on a path or you're tootling around on some slow road out in the country, that's where it's at this year. And people can take... Uh, trail rides, uh, uh, walking on the trails like Ricketts Glen, that's where you're going to see it. Yeah. Walking along, I, I, riding I, a bike. I reacted because walking those trails uh, on Ricketts Glen, my daughter said, okay, here, the, the very first one you, you get on, you have to you know, take a little bit of a step down and you're right next to the water. I'm like, okay, I don't know if I'm, I could, back in my <laughs> athletic days, that would have been not a, but it is not, you know, it is something that afterwards, yeah, you're, you've worked up a sweat, but at the same time, it's very, very enjoy, enjoyable to be outdoors like that. Do we have other parks like that? Oh, every, every one of the parks has all kinds of uh, trails. Mm -hmm. Hiking trails, bicycling trails. The state, same with the state forests. We've got thousands of acres, or so, thousands of of uh, miles of trails within mm -hmm. the state system. Now we had, uh, you know, one of our listeners talked about uh, the state forest. Uh, you working with the DCNR, uh, Dave? Uh, the state forest. How are they different from the state parks, and as, as far as getting outdoors and hiking, what you can do? Uh, the state parks are primarily. Um, a relatively, uh, how would, uh, not being a state park employee, uh, more of a high density. They've got they've got the campgrounds, they've got yurts, they've got cabins, all of that, uh, all of all the amenities that one thinks of in in developed camping. Mm -hmm. uh, plus all the trails, the fishing sites, um, the Bureau of Forestry. Their sites are more dispersed and they're not highly developed so they're more of a wilderness type camping where you you're rough yeah you're roughing yeah. it you're setting up your tent and you know you have a campfire or whatever yeah. and but again they've got a lot of uh, a lot of trails and also on the uh some of the state forests they have atv trails right. which again this time of the year 
people like to get out, and that is one of the ways for people who really aren't physically going to go do a five-mile hike they can get out and see it. Yeah, We only have about 30 seconds left. I want to thank uh, both of you for being with us today. Carrie, uh, we really didn't get into a lot of the festivals and events that are scheduled for this fall, but uh, the, the listeners who are interested, uh, I'm sure they can go to your website and learn all about it. Uh, what is your website? Yes, visit PA.com. And also, I hope that they'll follow us uh, on all of our different social media channels and sign up for our e-newsletter as well. Okay. And, uh, you know, we'll put, uh, we'll, in fact, we probably already have it, uh, a link to your website on our website, WITF.org. Carrie Lepore with uh, the DCNDED, with, uh, she's the Deputy Secretary for Office of uh, Marketing and Tourism and Film. Dave Schmidt, Department of Conservation and Natural Resources. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank, Thank you. you. Coming up on tomorrow's program, we have... Uh, well, we come back to uh, reality when we talk about affordable care health insurance rates going up. Also, another political candidate.